Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, everybody. Hey, monkeys. Welcome to Nate. Uh, <laughs> Should I start over? Should I edit this? Ah, why bother? Warts and all, baby. That's what podcasting is. Today, we're talking to writer Seth M. Sherwood, who is one of the writers for the uh, horror film opening this weekend, Hellfest. We dig into it. We talk about Hellfest. We talk about the horror genre. We talk about Star Wars, perhaps a little bit too much. It is a great conversation, and you will love it. And I'm going to keep this quick because, one, you don't care about these intros. And, two, uh, I had to turn the air conditioning off so it didn't make a whole lot of noise. And uh, it's getting warm. So, Seth Sherwood, Hellfest, let's do it. Welcome back in the monkey cage, my friend. Welcome back. That's right. I've been here before. Yeah, this is uh, Seth uh, Seth M. Sherwood returns. Yeah, huh? it is. I'm that's sorry. A, I just I realized there's a cough by, button right here. I was already distracted. If you want to play with it, you no, can. that's okay. If I it, if I cough, I'll, if you need I'll to cough, it. it actually makes you cough. That's the that's the joke. Uh, I would advise anybody who's checking out this episode based upon the fact that Hellfest is coming out in theaters this Friday, etc. And you might have some interest in what Mr. Sherwood has done in the past. You can hear his entire early history in episode number one. With Seth uh, in Snark Monkey, if you search back in the archives there. So we're not going to go over every particular uh, detail of your adolescence and your, uh, you We've know. We've done that. We've had that block Yeah, of occupational embarrassments or any of those other things. <laughs> Speaking of embarrassments, no, that's a terrible segue. Um, it's what I base my life around, so really it's okay. When we did talk, it was prior to the release of Leatherface. Yes. Which was the reason we kind of got together yeah. and it gave us an excuse to get back together and, and hang out again. We we uh, we did, spoiler alert on episode one, we did used to work together at the same company. <laughs> doing completely different stuff different um and uh leatherface as an experience because that was we talked about this in that first episode uh talk about in the genre uh, just a if you can say leatherface is a beloved character i don't sure, know <laughs> sure but uh, a revered perhaps revered is a good horror term. character uh which of course much like other people rebooting or revamping or redoing or anything i just talked to paul feig a couple of weeks ago who was accused of killing people's childhoods with the <laughs> ghostbusters reboot yes <laughs> um you got your share of crap from people because it was that was your baby that was your you know there were i mean there was a lot of things the, the directors get a great job the producers did a great job in letting me do whatever i wanted I made some choices. The problems with it kind of happened on the distributor end. Mm -hmm. They didn't know 
they had released another horror movie that was sort of a reboot, remake sort of thing that did not do so well. So they were afraid to spend money on it, so they shelved it for a while. And then when they decided to put it out because enough people were making noise that they they weren't confident about what was there and they wanted to cut things and they wanted to change things around. So ultimately, if you have the DVD, like all the scenes that I wish were in the movie are on the yeah. on there as deleted scenes. Really? Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's just a... And they waited so long to do it that the production uh, company lost the license to it. So it'll probably be like an all n- another reboot that, which would be the third one for the, you know. Coming from a completely different source. Yeah. yeah. And I've heard talk about a TV show. I mean, it's okay. I mean, I, ultimately, I, I get people send me hate mail because they love the character. Um, <laughs> and ultimately, I don't care. I mean, I, I, I don't. I should probably take death threats more seriously, but I don't. Well, yeah, I mean, I I guess. I mean, it's weird (laughs) to say that in the horror genre, you know, somebody wants to threaten to kind of flay the skin or, or, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, if you talk to Paul Feig, I mean, he he got it at a very wide level. And then we're seeing it a lot with uh, the last uh, couple Star Wars movies, too. Oh, sure. I, I... was a member of fandom, both just just genre, sci-fi, comic book, horror, you know, all the fandoms. I was, you know, into that for a long, long time. And I've just, you know, slowly started to really sort of dislike. There's a level of fandom that that's just a little extra that... Well, it's the, it's bad. it's and it's uh, the, here we're going to be get off my lawn, old guys yelling. Oh, yeah, no. But it's the, the Internet uh, gives everyone a platform to be at their loudest the most despicable selves yes. and with some degree of you know cowardice uh, and and non anonymity yeah, anonymity see anonymity <laughs> uh, no i read this uh, this see, great see, see president trump i can't see it say it either <laughs> anonymity i read this uh, this interview with trent reznor nine inch nails and he said like when twitter and social media first started to grow at first he thought like this is great like an artist can talk directly to their fans and after about a year he was like this is a terrible idea <laughs> and you know he was like when i was a kid and i liked you know bowie and pink floyd or whatever it's like all i knew of them was what you know what little snippets i can read in rolling stone magazine or whatever and it's not that those people need to be on a pedestal or need to be thought of as special or they need their fragile egos protected but in terms of being creative you do have to be in sort of a vacuum a little bit. It's this strange curse that I think is kind of just across all mediums of, of art and creativity is that you really have to be in and of yourself to be able to be creative. But the only gauge of success you have is how it's received by the masses. Right, right. And it's like you are like you have and to, you want that. I mean, you, look, you do. It's, you're, it's what weird. you're doing is is a mass consumption. It kind is. of art, which, the, you yeah. know, one measure of that it works is that people see it. People like it. People yeah. people go back. It becomes part of the culture. Right. I mean, that, uh, you know, that is the culmination of what you are aspiring to do. Right. Yeah. And if people don't like it, it used to be then, you know, it would just quietly go away. But now they will reach out to you because they can and they will let you know, yeah. you know, what's wrong with your, your movie, your life, your face your ideas everything yeah. you know which is which is funny because even uh, back in the day when you used to be able to do something bad and let it just go away it's still out there like for instance george <laughs> right. lucas never thought the star wars christmas special <laughs> would ever see the light of day again he tried to 
just, it, yeah. it's in, buried in some vault in Montana oh, right. right now, but didn't realize that people did record it on, v- there was on a, VHS. Do you know about the, the E.T. Atari 2600 yes, video game? Like, they literally dug it up in Mexico. They literally buried it. <laughs> so everything comes back. Yes. Uh, but you're talking about, I, I can think of three genres in particular in terms of kind of, you know, mass appeal entertainment. Horror, sci-fi, fantasy are the ones that, for some reason, the fandom reaches the the highest level. Yes. I mean, do you understand why the people get... I mean, you look at things sort like of. Comic-Con and you look at the way people embrace those characters. I mean, they certainly, in many cases, they embody maybe a personification of of what you would like to be or aspects of your personality that you right. are allowed to let out. I mean, we could analyze, just talk in general about cosplay, you know, for <laughs> hours about what that means to certain people. Yeah. But horror in particular is very interesting because it usually is the just darkest side of human nature, uh, the the most, you know, evil, sure. depraved aspect <laughs> of what people do. and <laughs> Which... Which many people find fascinating, and it's really passionate. And those three in particular, yes. and, and so you've got an arena where you know, because as a fan, you know how passionate you get about it. Yeah. How you know, I can't imagine what your house looks like around <laughs> Halloween. I mean, around Halloween, it's, I mean, I'm I'm pretty good. My 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 partner Emily, you know, I. Luckily, my, my tastes are very broad, so like my house doesn't look like a Halloween store all year round. My office does, but you know the rest <laughs> of the house is very tasteful. Um, but yeah, on, on around Halloween, there's a there's a couple like you know twelve foot inflatable ghosts that my neighbors hate that show up in the front yard. Um, I actually just worked on a project with this guy uh, named Rich Carell, who is. Um, He's a child actor. He was like the Beeb's best friend on Leave It to Beaver, and then he went into production. Oh, wow. He's directed more. He's directed like seven hundred episodes of sitcom TV. He does like like Fuller House. He co-created Hannah Montana. Anyway, he's one of these dudes. He's just, I just drove by his house on the way here over on Rimpo, um, who has like the crazy the crazy stuff. He's got like three semis. I know that house worth of material yes. that come from a warehouse in Ohio. And, you know, on Halloween night, there's a thousand people around the block. Right, right. Um, that's my goal. I don't, know what, I don't remember what the question was, but I'm just going to say that's my life goal. Well, I, do you understand? I mean, because you are, you started as a fan. As a fan. Um, and now you're in a world where you are hearing from fans. Uh, do you understand what is the, uh, what what draws people to, especially in the horror genre, what is it? That is it. Is it that thing about you know just being able to kind of embrace these dark things in a in a somewhat safe manner? Um, yeah, I think. I mean, generally speaking, for genre on the whole, I, I do think you know when I was a kid, um, you know, it was it was uh, it was my aunt and her weird friends who you know took me in. They were the ones that went to the Doctor Who conventions and and liked their comic books, and you know, and that was sort of where my introduction to a lot of that stuff came in. And I think it's. It's kind of what you're just saying about uh, social media is that with the internet is that these, you know, this used to be like outsider culture, like comic book nerds were like the people who were bullied. And since uh, pop culture has sort of embraced genre and it's become the biggest thing ever, Mm -hmm. um, you know, those people who were kind of weird and marginalized are strangely now the mainstream ones. And I think that the one this is what causes that you know their voices uh get louder and more intense because you know it's like when you're that your favorite band in college you know becomes a top 40 hit and you have to tell everyone how you like them 
before they sold out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, any... and be very angry Absolutely. in a way that you have to share this with the world. It's kind of that dichotomy. In music, it happens a lot because you are constantly telling somebody, you got to hear this band, man. Nobody knows about them. <laughs> and then they get hit mainstream success. It's like, ah, man, if yeah. screw that. No, they're terrible now. <laughs> it's like you want to share it with people, but you right. don't want it to be popular because you still want it to be a thing that you exactly. discovered. It's ridiculous. And, and you know, this, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like fantasy, like, like, you know, Game of Thrones is like the, one of the biggest shows there is. It just, and, it just won tons of Emmys. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't get more mainstream and more, uh, right. you know, establishment than that. Yeah. So I think what you have is, is that you, we look at fandom as a whole, but it's really sort of fractured. I mean, there, there's still, you know, core fans are the same people that have always been there. There's these people who come in from the mainstream side that like, you know, tend to want to, take ownership of it and that makes the original fans like mad and then you have this growing contingent of bro fans um who are you know <laughs> it's it's weird it's like it's like the the people who were like bro bullies when i was a kid like now they like uh you know now they like these things too and then they have to be very angry about it like I have very mixed feelings about the last Star Wars movie myself. Mm, me too. Um and I could say like why well, my problems with it were structural my problems with it were, were were this and here's what i think they should have done is my you know my because my opinion is very important but i'm not like but what i'm not doing is like driving people off social media with my nasty comment like right they, you're not, like, you're not, you didn't internalize it in a way that has made you angry about yes. it like it's affected your life yes to where, level, where i think there is a point where people do get like for sure like viscerally and also physically upset like they would if they yes. could they would punch ryan johnson in the face <laughs> i mean let it go I, I think what i think what happens is that and whether it's mainstream or whether it's not is that every, a lot of you know people people need things people need something in their life that tells them they're not in, insignificant you know for some people find religion some people find music everybody finds their thing sometimes it's you know just something they do within their own life for people who are deep deep into fandom that thing sort of becomes their life i mean i love star wars i was raised on star wars i would i you know i would i'd reach across this table and punch you in the face if somebody said i could write a star wars movie <laughs> but i don't decorate my house with i mean well, i do have like half a dozen lightsabers in my office right but like in my living room where people come in and sit down and you know from all walks of life whenever you know the one time a year i have company I don't have a giant Darth Vader standing in the corner. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No. But there becomes a level of fandom where people like, okay, this is this is the, my main thing in life. This is what like gives me passion and gives me joy. And that's great. If it gives you joy and it's not hurting anybody, like it's fine. If you want Darth Vader in your living room and that makes you happy and your friends come over to make them happy, that's all cool. It's all great. I'm not talking down about that. But some people who love their thing that much – when something comes along, like, say, a Star Wars movie by Ryan Johnson that shows them that, like, no, you actually don't own this thing. Yeah. And we're going to do something with it that you don't potentially like. And it may not satisfy exactly the... the There's a melt. Some people will have a meltdown. Not no. all, but some people will have a meltdown over that because they've, in their head, you know, taken ownership of this thing that they love so much because it means so much to them. Yeah. And, it, you know, I could argue all day if we could talk about Star Wars the entire time I'm here if we want to. I mean, yeah, like, yeah. 
Ryan Johnson, on the one hand, I don't think he owes anybody anything. And, you know, as a creative, I totally understand that, like, you don't go into a movie trying to, like, play it safe and give everybody but the, what they want. But at the same time, when you know you have the biggest fandom in the universe, like, just dying to see what you want to do, you you should give them a little bit of a cookie. Um, this, is, <laughs> this is a conversation I've had with uh, Gail Ann Hurd, who is producer on Hellfest. Oh, who yeah. Run, you know, you know, is the overseer of The, the Walking Dead. And, you know, whenever I've talked to her about that show, which I, I, I watch in chunks and go away from chunks and come back and catch up. Yeah. And I told her the reason I do that is because I'm like, you guys don't like to give the audience a cookie. I personally feel like if you're going to drag somebody through the, the, the mud and like make them feel terrible and give them anxiety, there should be, a, you should give them a cookie at the end of it so they feel better about their day. And, uh, Walking Dead holds their cookies for a very long yeah, time yeah. until it's, they give them out. Yeah. I was in a binge mode with Walking Dead because I had started it and then left it behind. <laughs> and so I think I jumped in around like season three and I was mm-hmm. catching up three through five. Yeah. So I was jamming. So it was like a couple of episodes every day. And you had and, no idea why you were so depressed. Oh, no. <laughs> I immediately recognized I felt like shit because there had been no, like you say, there is no I, release. I'll make a, a comparison. A lot of people talk about The Wire as maybe one of the best shows ever. Sure. And, uh, but if you watch it now, it doesn't kind of move mm-hmm. in the same way that contemporary television does, especially some sure. some of the bingeable uh, TV. So I watched it as a binge when it had originally been a weekly, and just not a lot happens. Yeah, but it builds kind of this infrastructure that very kind of slowly it's character driven for sure but what you really are hoping for them to have a victory is when they get a just a fucking approval just to get a wire i mean that's it <laughs> it's like they finally get the um yes. the warrant or whatever passed and 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 it and it takes like five episodes and what? i remember watching that and going Woo! and Yay. that was my cookie that was yeah. the biggest tastiest cookie of all time well that's because they they structured they would structure an entire season like a movie like when you watch yeah. a movie right. it's despair until you get to the third act which in a movie is the last like you know 20 minutes 20 right. 30 minutes right and when you're only sitting there for an hour and a half or two hours that's like a good build up and release you stretch that out to 12 hours i mean really all the payoff comes in the wire within the last two up ep- two three episodes of, of uh, each of season the, of each yeah, season. yeah. Um, but that's why it also hits you so hard it does it it, it's very impactful that way so they they're they reserve their cookies too but i get i get your point about the walking, walking dead. dead also they break their season in half yeah. so they'll give you half a season and then make you wait four months so then you're waiting like almost a year for a cookie. Yeah. And I like cookies. I, don't, you know. I love cookies. And then it turns out, you know, you get to the cookie and then it's like oatmeal raisin. It's like, fuck you. Right. No, right. I actually like oatmeal raisin, but <laughs> I know people really? hate it. I do. Actually, it's my favorite cookie. That is upsetting. What? Oatmeal raisin. <laughs> you know what? I will stand by oatmeal raisin anytime. If I know it's oatmeal raisin, I won't eat it. I would I get for me it's the betrayal where you think you're getting a chocolate chip cookie and then you realize you're eating a raisin and you're like See, what you gotta adjust your cookie attitude, man. If you're going in going, <laughs> I hope this is uh, oatmeal raisin, and then it turns out to be some sort of oatmeal chocolate chip concoction. You're like, oh, well that's a that's a surprise. I was expecting a tasty, somewhat healthy feeling oatmeal raisin. Mm. Mm. I had a chocolate chip cookie that was a peanut butter, also a peanut butter cookie at the same time, and that was a joyous. I, oh, treat. see, yeah, that gave was you a little surprise. <laughs> 
let's let's talk about cookie. This is snark cookie. Yeah, the podcast. How many? How many? Oh, we could we could go there. Uh, <laughs> how many cookies are in Hellfest? Hellfest looks actually like a, a, a real treat. The spooky amusement park kind of idea, or a spooky haunted house kind of idea, is certainly not anything. I mean. Scooby Doo for crying out loud! Right, uh, <laughs> there's there's a few greats. There's uh, Fun House by Toby Hooper, right. uh, which is one of my favorites. Um, there's a couple others that have that have come out in the last couple of years that are like touch on similar themes. I mean, go to any website saying anything about Hellfest, and there'll be a horror bro saying, eh, "What about this movie?" Yeah. He stole it. Um, the thing is, is this is like an, I have not gone anywhere to talk about this movie yet, where someone didn't say like, "Oh my god, I thought the same thing last time I was in one of these haunted houses." It's an. It's not even my original idea. There were there was a, a script before me that I that I, I basically started over with the concept. But it's one of those ideas that's sort of uh, hovering there in the zeitgeist. Right. I mean, it's like right. the, these, you know, horror amusement parks have become such a thing now, especially here in Southern California. Yeah. That they, um, and they become more of an event. I mean, yes. like the the premise here is it's almost like this is like a, a EDM style kind of thing where it could be. it's like this big you know youth oriented event where th- things are kind of ratcheted up a little bit. It's not a kids haunted yeah, house. Yeah, uh, this year is my uh, my son. He's thirteen, and we're going to Universal yeah. and Six Flags because Six Flags has a Hellfest maze. Um, we've done the the hayride for a few years, but this is his first year going to one, so he's amped yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's 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 become a very big thing, and like you know, every night somebody somewhere in there is, is thinking like, oh my god, what if one of these guys is real? And that's kind of the thrill of it. Um, so it's not it's not like a super duper original idea, but for me, the big original in for it is that I I've been trying to champion uh, a lot of time for the last few years with my own my my own original work is. Um, a return to fun horror. I love I love the Blumhouse model, and the Blumhouse model has taken over, and and you know everything that James Wan is doing with the Conjuring. Like I love these movies, but for me, when I was in high school, sneaking into R-rated movies or having sleepovers with my friends, it was all about like watching these horror movies as a group, and you laugh at them to keep from getting scared because you don't want your friends to think you're scared or they're just, you know, they're campy and they're silly. And it's like laughing and screaming at the same time are, are so much fun. Yeah. Like all the later uh, Friday movies and like, you know, definitely most of the, the Freddy movies, you know, there's, there's a level of uh, fun to them that they're fun to watch. And that's what I feel like. I'm not saying no one has done it in recent years because there's definitely have been a few, but like, I personally really miss the fun horror film. And yeah. like from the second one I went in and, and, and pitched on this thing, it was like this, I want this to be fun. If they're going to a place where you're supposed to have fun, we need to make this like a party movie. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. like, like, like there's going to be an arc through the night of like, you know, like, you know, you could take this, if you took the the story that the characters are doing, where you have one friend who's been away, who uh, is you know sort of like introverted and doesn't like literally let herself go free, and it's you know it's Halloween, have fun tonight. Like you could make this. This could be like a teen comedy movie where like they meet up with the boys and this girl's like, oh, I'm gonna let myself be free tonight, and then you know crazy things start to happen and the hijinks. Are just so happens in this case, it's it's murder. Um, <laughs> But Bloody like horrific murder. You know, it's, it's yeah. Hey, well, what's great about that is that you're talking about basically kind of what you and I grew up. I'm me, I'm older than you. Uh, let's just say it. Uh, but the, but the my a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, by quite a bit. No. Uh, I'm downright crypt keeper age at this point. <laughs> uh, but the '80s era of horror films, and and I'm I guess maybe kicked off by Halloween because to me that seems like ground yes. zero for a lot of these 100%. in terms of of 
the the way the genre w- kind of changed. Then it became like the screen movies were you know meta because they're self aware mm-hmm. you know and they were they were not and then parodies of those kind of things. So what you're going back to is that kind of 80s style. It's funny because that you say that because to just today as we record this, there's been this big buzz online about. An 80s style trailer oh, yeah, for trailer. Hellfest, which is so much fun. Which uh, the the company actually did themselves, yes. right? And, and I'm going to start petitioning them tonight about releasing an alternate cut of the movie in d- entirely that style, <laughs> shot that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would actually like to see it actually uh, squashed down for oh, TV, like, a like with yeah. borders and 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 have uh, tracking bad, errors and bad dubbing. Oh my God. <laughs> for so good. just the TV version of I it. I would love that. But yeah, look for the uh, uh, well. Look, watch the Hellfest trailer, and then watch the Hellfest '80s style trailer. Even with a great Lionsgate uh, old school <laughs> logo at the beginning, it's fantastic. It's, yeah, but no, but you're right. It, it, we've we've come full circle. We had the thing, the thing became camp. Mm-hmm. Then the thing became postmodern with like with, with Scream, where we're going to be like meta about it. And then came the wave of parodies. And then you know now we're circling back to like going and then, back and then to the, the dark period like you're talking yes. about where things got just got like really really a saw and, well, that, and I mean but that's that's the appropriate reaction to follow the parody era. sure it's yeah. like like no we're gonna double down on horror and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. make it dark yeah and yeah I guess I'm kind of circling back around I mean it, it's it's horror is just the genre that will not ever die if I see another think piece on like horror's here to stay like it, it's <laughs> horror's been strong consecutively yeah, nonstop for a hundred years it's never it's never and I and it still surprises people when these kind of random titles come up the nun comes out yeah. and it gets terrible reviews for the most part if you look at things like Rotten Tomatoes and makes a crap load of money yeah I mean there is always an appetite for being scared particularly in a movie theater it is one of the genres left one of the mm-hmm. few genres left in the modern day uh you know walk in pay you for a ticket cinemas outside of giant tentpole movies right. that you see in 3D it is one of the few genres left that people want to go see in theaters because of that community of the group scare yes. the the you know it's there's something still really special about seeing it with a group of yeah. people and, and all kind of having the same experience it's mostly profitable because it tends to be made on the cheap right not always on the cheap. I mean even like you know even like it for example or um you know a quiet place like these movies are huge um those are big studio releases with yes. a lot more resources behind them sure sure but even but, for a studio they're yeah. on the lower budget side right. because they're made I mean, horror works when it feels more stripped down and 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 grounded because then that's scarier when the weird shit starts to happen. Right, right, right. Um, people people like to be scared. <laughs> does it does it help or hurt when a movie like Get Out, which is not? I mean, he, he's clearly a horror fan, and that was you know his sure. template for starting that. Or A Quiet Place comes out and kind of gets this other level of critical acclaim. That helps the genre, right? Or is there an expectation yes. for things to be of a certain quality from at that point? Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I think – I mean, well, Get Out um, Get Out is, uh, first of all, edited by uh, Greg Plotkin, who directed Hellfest. Terrific. Um, it's – that was still a relatively small movie. That was a Blumhouse, and Blumhouse works very lean, very tight. Um, Quiet Place was, you know – Bigger. That was a that was a cheap acquisition because it was a script that existed that John Krasinski then went and you know overhauled and made into a thing. But you're gonna again. There's this division in fandom. There's gonna be horror fans who're gonna be like, 
Get Out's not a horror movie. It's more of a psychological thriller. And like to them, our uh, horror movie has to be an R-rated gore fest with naked women and <clears throat> somebody with a m- machete. Yeah. Um, it's all, I mean, like I, I, I use this as, as an example a lot, but my partner, uh, Emily, she says she doesn't like horror movies. Right. And I'll say to her, well, what about Silence of the Lambs? She's like, oh, well, that, but that's, that's a, that's a thriller. What about Psycho? Oh, well, that's, that, that, that's, that's a classic. What about The Shining? Well, that's, that's Kubrick. Like, <laughs> there is a tendency for people to judge and define horror based purely upon, uh, 80s slasher films. Yeah. Wherever, you know, somebody saw, kind you of know, the, the, the extreme level of, yeah. of the visual or the gore or the whatever. Right. The, they, or they, you know, they saw like on, you know, on cable, like on USA at midnight when they were 15 years old mm-hmm. in the 80s or the 90s, like some B-level slasher film and it was gross and terribly made and probably awful. Um, it was probably like, you know, My Buddy Valentine or something like that. And from there, that's what they associate with horror movies. And, you know, and there are people who just don't like to be scared and, like, they don't get why anybody would want to be scared or, you know, celebrate violence or scary things. Um, for most people... I, I have to admit, I've never been a big fan of the genre. I, I will go to the ones that I hear are really good. Yeah. And, and, and it is torture for me. <laughs> uh, I, there's nothing, I hate the torture ones, by the way. Yeah, uh, no, they're not fun. But the scary... But, the, but movies that genuinely have a scare... I, I I am the classic kind of avert my eyes from the screen. I, I am this close to just do, looking through sure. fingers. I don't know why or how that could possibly totally, help me. Totally natural reaction. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. Yeah, but it's it's not it's not my favorite sensation. But I will go see the ones that I hear are just really. <laughs> do you good. like roller coasters? No. See, I mean, no. But a lot of people do. Yeah, I know. I know. That. It's, it's the exact same thing. It's like that. No, it's idea. not that I don't understand it, but yeah. I'm very self aware. It's like I know. I, I for instance, <laughs> if you were, to, I know people who are like, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna jump out of a plane with a parachute once, just once. I want to experience that. Well, that's I'm like, crazy. nope, I ain't gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that. No, either. I have absolutely no. Uh, I mean, I literally know that there is nothing about me that is going to get anything out of that. Yeah. I appreciate life. The way it is right now, I take my chances walking across Wilshire every day. I mean, that's that's scary. I enough. almost get somebody making a right turn directly into to me when I got the walk sign. Anyway, it happens uh, here too. It happened at our old location constantly oh, as well. Absolutely. No, I put my I put my life in my hands. All the, time. <laughs> the, the the most I will ever feel like a daredevil is when I have uh, milk a day or so after the expiration date. I think I'm I'm, I'm really flying in the face of danger. Uh, let's let's continue to talk about Hellfest. So it came it came to you. Mm-hmm. You developed it. Uh, you basically took the concept and kind of you know yeah, there were, built there were, upon that. There were a few drafts before me mm-hmm. that. Um, uh, and it's not to say they were bad. It was just not what the studio wanted. The way, movies are made today. They're never because they're good or bad. It's always like a checklist. We need to shoot here. We have this actor. We have this director. And a lot of times a script just doesn't fit what the studio needs to do, whether it's their money situation or whether it's the scope of what they want to show people. And a lot of times when you know the script doesn't work, a lot of times they'll stick with the writer. But most times, unfortunately, they just shift to another one. You yeah. can't. You can't write in this town and not um, not end up being rewritten at least once, and not rewrite somebody else at least once. Yeah, so, and have it completely out of your control. That um, is uh, totally. the, the the plight of the writer for yes. years and years Hellfest and years. Hellfest has and years. about three hundred writers credited to it, and basically, uh, <laughs> not literally. I know there's a lot. There's, there's a few. There's a there's there's a there's a 
there's two entities. There's a, a, a team and another guy who f- shared the story by credit. Those are the drafts that came before me. And from there, we used certain elements. We used certain ideas. They were good scripts, but for whatever reason, it's not what the studio wanted. I came in with uh, a different, fresh, new you know version of it. And I set out with, you know, new characters. And that was a vision that I had. And that's what they said. Great. Let's do it. That's what we wrote. That's what got it greenlit. That's what they decided to prep and shoot. And then, um, after me, there were two more writers. Um, first, uh, Kayla Cooper came on because they're like, you know, we feel like since it stars female leads, we should really have a quick polish from a female writer. And I'm like, absolutely go for it. I have, you know, I have no problem with that. It's fine. And she's a great writer. And then, uh, you know, then she moved on. She, you know, did something awesome like selling her own show to Netflix and getting staffed on Luke Cage so she okay. so then uh, uh, Blair Butler who's another amazing writer came on to sort of pick up where she left off and Blair added you know some of her spin to the characters and I could say it's awesome because ultimately the uh, the basic story structure and movement of it is still what I did and all the main scares and the big beats are still mine and they just you know made me look even better great and I love it's them. nice when that happens it has, when I mean, you actually they, are, are happy yeah. with the work that's been done on something you did the guys before me might hate me I don't know yeah you know, they, they probably they, do they probably do yeah um, <laughs> hey Hollywood boys it's the way it happens you know they're all working and they're all doing just fine and, they, and, and, the, and the check cleared yes I would assume um, so yeah so basically <laughs> uh, I you know I had a few the, a few concepts that they liked from the previous versions but for the most part I came in and just sort of started at um you know started fresh and uh, did you bring anything to the table where you were thinking oh here's an opportunity to go a direction i've been thinking about and i just didn't have a chance to do that or did you feel like you were working with not a blank slate entirely because you had the premise and you had kind of you know whatever you were given the the tools to work with but did it open up an avenue for you go oh i've always wanted to go this direction yeah cause yeah I've, and that's what the, the the villain with the actual oh, yeah? with the other uh the slasher and that's that was um that was that was mostly i mean obviously fic- worked on after me but like that was my big introduction to it and i'm like here because that was really where they were sort of struggling because in this sort of like post scream world like when you know the audience like how do you how do you go back to basics without like being you know trite or arch about it and what we you know had to come up with was like the thing that they were getting hung up on the drafts before me it was like what's the motivation of this killer why are they doing this uh you know it, you know in one draft it was you know you know poor jimmy the right operator who got mangled and 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 like you know his insurance claim was denied. Not, not really. but it was things like that. Was like there was a definite like search of what? like trying to find a good motivation for what this person would be. Right. And does it need that? And I does mean, it need that? Yeah. Is that? I mean, and, and that's that was basically what you're my asking. approach. Yeah. Was like like my approach with this was like no. What if we know nothing about it? Mm-hmm. And I'm not I'm not spoiling anything here because it happens in the first act of the film. But the guy comes into the park. We don't you don't see him. But he comes into the park just like anybody else. Mm-hmm. But he smuggles in a mask. He finds a weapon. He pulls a hood up. But like you know, this is a person who likes going to these places, and he just comes in. He goes in like he's just any one of us. He could be any other guy. That's just why we, why we call yeah. him the other. Yeah. Um, but it just so happens this is the one night a year where he you know lets his crazy out, which yeah. is ironically now what all the the kids and the stars of the, the whose story it is like they're telling the lead like oh my god let go like just have fun for yeah, one night yeah. be yourself stop being so responsible like let loose a little bit and you know that message uh, you know is taken to the extreme by <laughs> by the other well so what it's funny you say that because one one of the great things about some of the early movies we were talking about whether it's 
um, like the original Halloween, the original mm-hmm. Friday the 13th. I mean, there there is some backstory given, but it is a literal it is a thumbnail. It's a of, line. It's like yeah. he was born evil. Yeah. And, was- and and as and as the series collectively move along, they dig further into that. And the ironic thing, of course, is that one of the things that you got some crap about with Leatherface is that you were essentially creating an origin story. Yeah. And uh, there are people who just didn't want that. No. I just want my villain yes. to be an evil motherfucker touched by the devil in some right. way. Please don't give it an explanation. And that and that that pisses people off. That's weird. Yeah. So it was I mean, I like that the the idea that maybe we're that's part of what this kind of style is gonna be, which is we don't need to necessarily know everything about this guy. Not everything. I mean, you get until I mean, Hellfest Five. It's, yeah, no, I mean it's it's all it's all planned. It's all figured out. Uh, <laughs> you got the full arc. <laughs> I I mean I hope so because I'd like to just keep you know churning these out and getting paid for the yeah. rest of my life on them. Have you seen it? Um, I've seen. I haven't seen the final final cut, um, but I saw the the almost final cut. Does and, it satisfy the horror fan? Is are, do you have yes. any ability to pull yourself out of it and and just enjoy it as a Not movie? Not really, but yeah. but I but I tried. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, like what what I saw, like because I I had I had gone to work on a television show, so I was sort of out of the loop on the last, you know, on the um, when they were shooting it. So you had some distance. I had a little bit of distance, and, you know, and like, you know, you can have things on a page, but when they get there on set, they, you know, things get tweaked, and Greg, to his credit, did this amazing thing to where like, you know, we had the, we had the big beats, the big scares, and the kills were in the script, but all the smaller things, like, you know, because they're at a theme park, it's, it's you know, <laughs> I saw this comment on, on one of the horror websites about after the trailer where somebody was like uh it looks like a movie full of jump scares i'm like it obviously you don't you can't go to a horror theme park and be killed for real the entire premise of a horror theme park is it's going to be non-stop jump yeah. scares yeah so greg and his in a, uh, had this great idea that like when they were blocking scenes he would walk the actors through and say okay then you know Jimmy the monster is going to pop out right here and scare you. Act scared. They do one through, you know, do the walkthrough, do it a couple times, get it down right, do a take, do another take, do a third take. Then on the fourth take, he had a scare actor that the actors didn't know about jump out from somewhere else and he'd get a real scare out of them. And, you oh, know, and, great. you know, and rattled their cages. So a lot of the times, a lot of the reactions you're seeing from them are legit. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and that, like, really captures Genuinely, the like, it. it would be in that sort of exactly. real life scenario. So when I watched it for the first time, a lot of those beats were like, like organic, like I, the the story was what I expected it to be, but yeah. the the um and also the chemistry of the cast is amazing. Those the kids did an awesome job; they're so good. Um, and that that was like you know I could write words on the pa- on a page forever, but like you know having them find their like rhythm and their dynamics and their chemistry with each other, and then you know their little improvs and their little character beats as they start to inhabit the characters, it you know takes on a life of its own. Um, you know, and that was like a treat to see for the first yeah. time as well. How uh, how are you adjusting to being in the industry now? When we talked prior to Leatherface, you had you were still kind of almost getting your feet wet. I mean, yes. Leatherface was really was the, the first, first major project that yeah. was credited to you. Uh, you had just come off of a an uncredited writing session that was mm-hmm. a hilarious adventure for you in in London, <laughs> which I don't. I think it's people aware now. Now it, it, it was on London has fallen. It's known. I'm credited. I'm, I'm. We didn't talk much about it then. I think I'm because credited as an uncredited writer on IMDb. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> yeah, London has fallen. Uh, but so now you've 
you've kind of had those you've had the experience of some heavy criticism for something mm-hmm. you've had the experience of a really odd project that maybe you shouldn't have been, <laughs> been a part of but you I'll, i would never take when it has fallen back uh, I, I mean will i tell people go see this it's a great movie yeah. probably not but it's super fun if, if you like b action movies with yeah. great one-liners obviously it's a fun movie but like but as an educational experience from like the industry, oh I've seen something that you had never been through before and going, what is going on? I mean, they're like, here's a bunch of money to go live in London for a month, have a per diem, live in a hotel, have an office at Pinewood next door to Star Wars, write one liners <laughs> for Gerard Butler and write a fancy speech for Morgan Freeman and get in the union. Yeah. Like, that's all win. That's, yeah, there's yeah, nothing, totally. nothing wrong totally. with any of that. It was great. So now you've got a little more experience under your belt. You've kind of navigated the industry a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You're establishing yourself in film and television, which we'll talk about the Hulu series, if we may. Yes, sure. Um, how's it feeling? I mean, um, do you, it's, do you it's feel good. at home? There was, a, there was, you know, I did, I did Le- uh, Leatherface and London has fallen in the middle of Leatherface. And then I had a year worth nothing. Yeah. And like, you know, it really, really, really is uh, winning a lottery and breaking its odds to going against the odds to have a movie made and get yeah. paid for it and have it be a thing that happens. For it to happen a second time is even harder. And like I was realizing that, like I'm like I made it, but like you didn't really make it. Like there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of movie versions of one hit wonders behind the cameras. There's people who write movies and then don't ever write movies again. Yeah, I'm very friendly with a number of people now who who regularly work in the industry, and I see them. I mean, it is still a hustle yeah. from project to project. And I, I mentioned, I don't mean to keep name dropping, but Paul Feig, you know, we... Oh, I, that guy. I literally talked to him the last day before he went off to London, cause, and he's, he, he has not had back-to-back jobs yeah. in, I mean, ever. He's never had a time where he didn't have a big gap between movies. And that's a guy who's had a couple of big successes and it, you still have to really hustle. And sometimes you have to say yes to something because you really are afraid they're just going to go away. I mean, I did. And those movies won't get made because you know, the, you know, for (laughs) For whatever reason, whatever reason, Um, that's fine. Not because they're not brilliant scripts. (laughs) One of them got made and I don't talk about it and it's, it's out there. People can find it. And it, it was a lesson in like, you know, you can have something on a page that is good, but if you don't give it any money and you don't give it a qualified director and you don't give it people who can act and you still try to make it with those pieces, it may not be great. Yeah. Um, still learning experience. But um, but yes, no, I mean, like I had a chunk or a time where I didn't work. And, you know, by the end of that year, I was like, well, OK, I guess I'm going back to the old career and going back to my previous job. Um and then I got a little thing that sort of floated me for a little while, and then I got another little thing, and then, and then it started to, you know, then it started to pick up. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think, like, I'm trying to track in my head where exactly it picked up. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, honestly, it was the, sort of like the lead up to Hellfest. I mean, there, there was, there was a movie in there that, like, I mean, I've written a couple movies for places that went like out of business because that happens with production companies. Sure. And there were, just, you know, they were little things that that floated me here and there. Um, there were a couple like uh, EP jobs on movies where basically I was a producer, which meant that they wanted me to write it, but they they didn't want to pay union fees, so I sort of you know helped them shepherd the story, and you know, I did lots of little things like that to sort of help me, you know, keep working. And then uh, I. 
had written a couple pilots, and they were read over at Valhalla, which is Galen Hurd's company. And um, they liked it, and I developed a TV show with them. I spent like half a year developing this TV show with them that we went out with, and ultimately um, Universal bought it, but we couldn't find a home for it like, network-wise. And But in that process of working with them, by the time we were done, I'm like, you know, uh, I sent Gail this email where I'm like, I just, you know, thank you. I mean, this, I mean, like, no, we didn't find a home for the show, but I'm failing at like a really good level <laughs> to have gone out with you to pitch a TV show to like all the major players. Right. And now like, you know, everybody at like Netflix or Amazon or, you know, Universal, they're all like saying, hey, come back when you got another thing. Like, yeah. that's a really good place to be, even though we didn't land my thing. And, you know, to which Gail's response was like, well, I got this thing over here on a shelf that we haven't quite cracked called Hellfest. Um, so it's, it's coming out now, but for me, this was like, you know, sure. a couple of years ago at this yeah. point. Um, that's and- good. That's one of the things when I talk to, especially when I talk to, uh, people in TV, uh, producers, showrunners, uh, head writers, that sort of thing, they get the opportunity to pitch. If they've been on anything good at all or have, a, yes. you know, a certain it's reputation. 90% of my job. Yeah. I mean, pitching. And in fact, one of, one of, uh, my friends, Trey Calloway, is an executive producer and and uh, it teaches a class in pitching at USC, which it's I think a, is brilliant. And because it thing. is an art unto itself, it yeah. is nothing like what you do as a writer on a day to day basis. It's honestly, it's the hard, It's what I do spend most of my time doing, uh, and you don't get paid for it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's heartbreaking. Exhausting. The pro- it is. The process You to just me, need to get one, though. And then yeah, you're, and then I know. you're good for another couple years. But it's when, to me, the thing, and I think maybe one of the things that I've always known, and one of the reasons I never really had maybe the, the, the guts to stay with this process when I was learning this, was to create something and pour your heart and soul into it and to put it out there and to get some traction and to get to a certain point. And then when it's killed, yeah. It goes away. Yep. And you don't I mean with very few exceptions, you don't get to bring that back. No. It, you don't get to revive that. That's not a thing you can turn <laughs> around especially when it's been shopped around to every major yeah. studio in town. It's like you can't go back around for, you know, round 2 and go, no. "Remember when you passed? Like, you want to look at it again?" You just have to move on. And that yeah. to me just uh that kills me. That's like uh, yeah, like I said. That's why I, I, you know, that's why I say things like I'm failing at a really good level. Yeah. <laughs> I, ju- I just went out with a show with Amblin, um, and like you know, f- the two original TV shows I've gone out with, I'm with Gail Ann Hurd and with Steven Spielberg. I'm doing something right, even if they're not happening. Yep, yep. Um, that that's you know that's what gets me through not crying myself to sleep at night. <laughs> um, you want to talk about the Hulu show? Sure. Uh, light as a feather, stiff as a board, uh, <laughs> which is a game I don't remember but i brought that up to other people and they were like of course yeah so i'm clearly i was a sheltered i mean and, it, uh, it may have been child. more of like a girl slumber party thing I instead so. of a dude thing with, yeah. you know especially in the 80s or 90s yeah um but yeah uh this is you want to describe the series a little bit it is that it is that concept it is a group of girls who play light as ever light as a feather stiff as a board and a cemetery on halloween night mm-hmm. and now see that's not a good idea. <laughs> Why are funny? the kids that, still doing that? The second I, you know, I go online and I'm no, like, I don't mean your your idea is no, not no, a good no, idea. Know, yeah. It's the in the universe of the peop, of the place where the girls are living. You don't do that. <laughs> Haven't you seen enough scary movies not to do that? There's variations on this game. <laughs> it, like, you know, regionally, it's like one of those things that changes depending on where you grew up. Right. From. So I went onto YouTube and watched like you know people's just summer party recordings of them playing this game just right. for, for reference. 
And in the comments, cause I mean it's YouTube comments, so take it with a grain of uh, of um, a giant bag of salt. A giant bag of salt from a home for people with an IQ of two. <laughs> um, and people are like, you know, like every one of them had a comment of like, oh well, you just invited a demon into your house. Oh boy, like fully believing it. Um, so one regional version of this is when you do the light as a feather, stiff as a board, is that you tell before you do the levitation, you like you tell the story of how the person who's going to levitate is going to die. It's like you just whoever's running the game makes up a story and says, "Oh my God, they were on their way to soccer practice and got hit by a bus." You know, whatever whatever it is, they tell this like gruesome story and then you then you float. So with our girls in this story, they do that and then the girls actually start to die in the fashion the game was predicted. And this is uh, how many episode series? Ten episode, ten half hour episodes. Is it a anthology series, or uh, nope. if so, there is an arc that it could, or is it a limited series? Or it, no, it's. It, I mean, I mean, if it could people continue. like it, it could definitely continue. Oh, it ends on a nice, you know, it's got some good cliffhangers toward nice. the end. When is this? Uh, all two episodes weeks. available? Epis- October well, don't 12th? say two weeks on a podcast. Uh, uh, October twelfth, <laughs> two weeks after Hellfest comes uh-huh. out. Perfect. Uh, why Hellfest a month before October? Was that just open on the schedule? Well, you don't want to compete with Michael Myers. Oh, crap. That guy. That guy. That guy again. And, and Jamie Lee again. It's a window. We're at the 28th. We're at the beginning of the Halloween season. It'll, yeah. you know, it'll, it'll carry through. It doesn't matter. It's going to do fine. I like to think there's a different audience for Hellfest. I mean, I'm, I'm amped for Halloween, but I don't know how many 17-year-olds really give a shit about Michael Myers. I, am, and I hope they do. I mean, I... I'm friends with a lot of people who worked on that movie, and I want it to do well, and I'm excited for it. Yeah, there's some nostalgic, I, there's some nostalgia energy sure. behind that, but not necessarily. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I feel like we're definitely targeting a younger audience totally. than, than they are. Totally. So, oh, I'm very excited. Hellfest. Uh, by the time you hear this, it will be well. It's probably going to be available tonight. Let's say September 28th, uh, and available right now. Um, uh, quick questions, uh, lightning round, whatever you want to call it. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember if I asked you last time what your favorite horror movie of all time. Can you remind me? Um, no, because I'm sure every time I ask, I give a different answer. a different answer. answer. What would it be um, right now? Today, it's The Shining. Okay. What is your favorite movie all time, period, uh, all genre? Blade Runner. Oh, cool. Uh, if you were forced to go up on a karaoke stage at gunpoint, what is the go-to song? Uh, Shout Out the Devil, Motley Crue. <laughs> Very nice. Do they usually have that available at karaoke nights? At uh, the karaoke places I've gone to infrequently, yes. Uh, excellent. <laughs> uh, uh, of all the accoutrement, decoration, or uh, possessions within your home that you mm-hmm. do put out at Halloween, what is your most prized? Ooh. Um, I mean, the 12-foot-tall inflatable light-up ghost that's, is pretty good. Pretty I sweet. mean, it's just a Home Depot buy, but... Do you have any collectibles? Do you collect stuff? Um, I, I don't have like, a lot of horror collectibles. Yeah. I have I have some. I do I do have a, a lightsaber collection that uh, mine are legit though. Like I I I, I um, one of the things I need in my life <laughs> is a physical hobby because like so much of my work is in my yeah, head. Something to do with your hands. A lot of times I need something to do with my hands. Right. And um, for a while was one day like three four years ago I was looking at one of my son's Nerf guns. And I'm like, that thing's really cool looking. Like, that would be, someone could use that in a sci-fi movie if it didn't look like it was a plastic toy. Right. So I grabbed it and I painted it and I made it look like some sort of movie sci-fi weapon. I'm like, that was super fun. So I went and bought like thousands of dollars worth of Nerf guns and was doing that for a while. (laughs) And one day going through a box, I found this thing called a Graflex uh, three-cell camera flash. And I had this thing because 
I was in this unique position in the mid-90s of being a Star Wars fan when Star Wars was not popular, and also being a photo major in undergrad. And I just so happened to know, like, read somewhere that, like, the original lightsaber props from the 70s were built out of these old press camera flashes, like the big... Uh, if you ever seen the the public eye with Joe Pesci, right on the cover right. of the movie poster, he's holding the giant old press camera right. with the big dish with the light bulb in it. Yeah. I'm making hand gestures, but I realize this is an audio medium. <laughs> um, that camera flash is what they use to make some of the lightsaber ah, okay. There's a few different models of it. And I knew this and I like, you know, I got it and I um you know, did my best to make it look like a lightsaber when I was in my twenties and I was very proud that like I was one of the few people who knew this and figured it out. Uh, after I was painting my son's Nerf gun, I found this and I'm like, I want to do, I like, I want, I want to like do this right now because there's now that we have the internet and HD versions of Star Wars, I'm sure I can do a much better recreation. And I come to find out that there's an entire community of Star Wars prop enthusiasts who track down because like the original Star Wars movie was technically pretty low budget. Yeah. Like George Lucas was flying by the seat of his pants. Yeah, they were gave, slapping stuff together oh and taking God. model kits and, and exactly. throwing it on. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And like for everything in the desert on, on, on Tatooine, all the production design, they literally went and spent a, a sterling pound for a physical pound of airline and military scrap mm-hmm. from a junkyard. <laughs> and from that, they built all these crazy metallic things. Just and pieced it together. And just pieced it together. And so like there's this entire community of guys who've like studied pictures and like found like oh that knob is from a British turntable that was made in ni- I'm not even joking that was made in the 70s yeah, and yeah. they track it down and they buy it and it's become this whole thing and there's guys who like take these things and 3D scan them and make replica parts so I was able to like I'm like you know what I can like I'm I can do this right now because now I can buy like like the grips on this lightsaber are like cabinet runner like door cabinet runner from the 70s in England. Not very easy to find now, but there's people who make faithful, like, one-to-one recreations of it that you can buy and stick on your lightsaber prop. So, I know Lucasfilm puts out, like, official lightsaber prop replicas, but I, like, I've tracked down the actual camera parts and have remade these things and built them with my own hands. That is the nerdiest thing, actually, second nerdiest thing about me. What's the first? The first nerdiest thing is, like, if you took all the hate mail I got from Leatherface, combined it with the happy mail that I got from Leatherface and combine that with uh, the mail I've started to get with he- with Hellfest, it's still only a fraction of the feedback and responses I got from a self-published online e-book that I made uh, breaking down exactly all this information about Star Wars lightsaber props. <laughs> It's an 80-page book that I designed and made myself. And you from, can't count that as first nope. nerdiest. Both of those are combined under one giant nerdy headline. Uh, oh, you know, good I do Lord. all these interviews to talk about horror stuff, and I always end up talking about Star Wars. <laughs> I don't know. Somehow it all comes back to Star Wars, doesn't yeah. it? So it just does. <laughs> uh, final question. Contractually obligated to ask this. It's not me. It's my uh, overlords. Sure. Um, have you, since we last talked... Had an encounter with, worked with, or in any way dealt with a monkey? A monkey? No. Well, we does that mean they're going to make you change the name? No. Is that the problem? No, it's just it just makes for a really cr- crappy ending to a podcast. <laughs> no, no monkey. I mean, I saw one of the Planet of the Apes movies and had you know some feelings about it. Does that count? <laughs> That does count. Okay. And we won't go into that because then there's another two hours of discussion. (laughs) Which one? Never mind. The last one. Okay. The last one. That was pretty good. 
Yeah, it wasn't bad. It was all right. I mean, okay, we won't. We don't have to get into it. Seth, uh, good luck and congratulations. Thank you, Seth. I have a feeling the movie is what's it? Uh, what's it competing against? It's there's nothing even remotely close genre wise. Hence the other reason why it comes out. Yes, <laughs> they found the right spot. September twenty eighth. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we won't plug the other ones. Fuck them. <laughs> all right, Seth. Proud of you. Thank you, sir. Excited for you. Thank you. Uh, I I wish you great success, but not so much that you will stop talking to me. Uh, so, well, I mean, if Paul Feig can still come around, I mean, I'm sure I can slum it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay, the end. Get a monkey. Get a monkey. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.